welcome to the Theology Podcast. And uh, we may not be in the bunker today, but we kind of feel like we are because we are the only people in the restaurant. We're here at Flatbread Pizza alone <laughs> because of the plague, because of the coronavirus, because everybody is like stocking up on toilet paper and going home. And here we are, bold, intrepid, and... Uh, podcasting for you today. Yeah. Well, we got a fun show today, and it actually ties in a bit. It's Glenn's day. We'll, we'll, we'll let Glenn introduce it in a moment. But uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the uh, senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And you are? Uh, Thomas Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell uh, Theological Seminary, but now forced from the classroom to online due to the fact that we now have a virus in the air. And, and you're in the bunker at your I house, in the instructing your students from afar. That's right. Yep. So, yeah. So, all right. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at the currently closed Central <laughs> Connecticut State <laughs> University, also teaching online for them, uh, and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, where I don't teach live most of the time anyway. Well... Today it's your your day, Glenn, and we, and it's it's apropos. It's an apropos subject. Why don't you introduce it to us and and tell us a little bit about what you saw in the news here? Was it today? Uh, about uh, yeah, the, you know the, the, what uh, yeah. we were talking about. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let, let let's start with the news. Um, it turns out that a well-known televangelist is once again in trouble with the law. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, That's never happened. Yeah, and uh, uh, Reverend Baker has been promoting colloidal silver, whatever that is, <laughs> as a cure for the coronavirus. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we're doing good. I'm going to have a coffeehouse porter in a little bit. But... Oh, absolutely. I'll give you a couple minutes. I'll bring it over. Great. Yeah, anyway, um, uh, colloidal silver, whatever that is, as a cure for the coronavirus, and he has now been arrested for... Uh, practicing medicine without a license or selling patent medicine or something. I'm or not sure exactly what. Or being a witch doctor. <laughs> or, or a witch doctor. And that, in fact, is our transition. Yes, yes. Um, we are, uh, the, on request, somebody sent me a message through Facebook saying, you need to do a show on magic. Yeah. So we are going to do a show on magic. Now, we aren't talking about Penn and Teller magic here. No, no. We are talking what about, about uh, Jim and Tammy Baker. Well, Magic. yeah. Well, uh, well, we might need to draw some distinctions here, but um, yeah, uh, magic, uh, which is something that there actually there's a growing number of people that I see on my college classes uh, who firmly believe in it, and uh, so I thought it might be kind of fun to take a look at it the way it was viewed historically um, within the church, and then bring it into some of the things that are going on today. So that, that's at least the game plan. We'll see what actually happens. Now, some of our, some of our listeners may not be familiar with Jim Baker. Mm. Now, for us, I mean, this is like the good old days. I mean, I mean yeah. you know, deja vu all over again. <laughs> that's right. The Praise the Lord Club, the PTL Club of the 1980s. Now, I've got a story about the Bakers, <laughs> and I have to tell it. And it includes my mother-in-law. <laughs> now, my mother-in-law, if you if you were if you were selling snake oil for Jesus, she was buying. <laughs> and she she was into Robert Schuler and the Crystal Cathedral, and you know, and all that stuff, the Hour of Power, and all that kind of thing. But she was into the Bakers too. 
she just, in fact, she went with them all the way to the end. You know, wow. even when everything came out about yeah. just all the disgusting stuff that was going on within that whole world, she was she was defending them to the end. And then, and now that it's just all fait accompli, it's all done, and people <laughs> have served their time, and and their and their son, you know, you know, Jim and Tammy Baker's son is just a basket case. Uh, She's got amnesia. She doesn't remember. Who? But but I remember uh, that uh, my my wife and I were newly married, and uh, this was one of those moments, these defining moments in a relationship. And my mother-in-law decided that it'd be a great idea to give us as a present a lifetime membership to Heritage USA. Oh wow! Now Heritage USA was like a Christian theme park. <laughs> yeah. It was sort of like Disneyland. Where you had actually Tammy Baker makeup lines and stuff like that that were on sale at did, this hotel. Did, did they also sell trowels to put it on? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you have to go back. If you don't know what Glenn is talking about, just go on YouTube and look up. You know the, the you know the PTL club, which was like the competitor to the Seven Hundred Club back in the day. <laughs> and anyway, you'll, you'll see what Glenn's talking about with the makeup. But anyway, so I was there, and the place was gaudy. Yeah. I mean, it was poorly constructed. I mean, I was in construction at the time, and so I was working in that field in buildings, you know, commercial uh, concrete and steel construction. And I was looking around. I said, "This place is junk. This place is a this place is a joke." And uh, but my mother-in-law was just into the glitz and the glamour of it all, and so she hadn't told us yet. She had invited us down there. You know, I was a I was a graduate student. My wife, we were poor. You know, we were grateful for the opportunity to get away and have have some time. You were thinking, I, hey, it's you know, vacations a vacation. That's right. So we're in this, we're in this, these grounds, and then she she, you know, in, it's sort of like the drum roll, please, and then she unveils the great gift, and it's a lifetime membership to to this place, and so I said, Ma. No. <laughs> she didn't talk to me for six months. <laughs> but what happened was, and this, by the way, this is, some, this is, instru this is instruction, particularly to young men, what you need to do early in your marriage is draw the lines. Especially if your mother-in-law wants to get you a lifetime membership right. to Heritage USA <laughs> or a lifetime investment in, what is this again called? The Colloidal silver. <laughs> yes. right. Yeah, these people go from thing to thing. Well, anyway, at least they're consistent. So, uh, so that is my memory that of, of of Jim and Tammy Baker, and I, and I'm I'm pleased to say I've never actually seen them in person, and I've never because of that had the misfortune of actually touching them. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, so but you might get coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, real quick before we jump into the theme, is is just it's worth noting that even within the fine field of Christian believers in readiness, we have a very gullible class of people oh, yeah. that have a very a, a strong readiness to follow charlatan, charlatans, I can't even say it now, charlatans, um, as far well, you know, as they One, one of the go. things I was talking with, with, with you I mean, yes, uh, a few days ago, we were talking about sort of, a, a, sort of the popular understanding of what happened, in, what was going on in the Middle Ages uh, in contrast to what actually was happening. Yeah. Oftentimes in the Middle Ages, start. yeah. Oftentimes in the Middle Ages, a lot of the nutty stuff was lay movement. It was lay-led stuff, and the church was trying to sort of control it, it, yeah, and try to quash it. Right. Yeah. Um, let I, I want to start actually. You know, coming off of what Tom said there, 
Thank you. Try perfect one. timing. Perfect timing. Try one of those, actually. You got it. Looks, okay, got looks it. good. Yeah. I'm it's outnumbered good, good at the table. I just tried a sample of it uh, before you guys got here. It, it, oh, yeah. This is, a, this is a really good one. Yeah. yeah. And for those of you who aren't here, it's stouts all around. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come over to Glenn's side. That's, yes. <laughs> That's right. Um, I am not an IPA guy. That's what um, happens with powerful magic. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So, the, the, the place I, I guess I want to start is on this. This idea of charlatans and the the ability to fall into them. C.S. Lewis, uh, and in the intro to the Screw Tape Letters, says that Christians fall. Well, the culture in general, not just Christians, fall into one of two errors with regard to the devil. Either they see the devil behind every bush, <laughs> or they completely ignore his existence as if he weren't there. And and he says the devil is happy either way. So I think Lewis is absolutely dead on there. So as we take a look at this, as we're moving into this discussion of, of magic and such, it's important to keep that in the back of your mind because it's really easy on the one hand to be way too credulous uh, or on the other hand to be Thank way too skeptical. Much. Right, right. You know, and to, uh, to just simply reject anything out of hand. Right. Okay. So let, let, let's look at the Middle Ages. First of all, let's, let's get rid of one idea right away. Witch hunting did not happen during the Middle Ages. Yeah, that was more some really modern thing. Yeah, w- witch hunting begins in Europe really at the very end of the 1400s. It's actually during the Renaissance, mm-hmm. what, what most people would consider the Renaissance. Right. And then it moves into the early modern period. So you're not doing witch hunting during the Middle Ages. Um, I suppose the place to begin, though, you know, beyond just simply noting that, is a couple of, of uh, distinctions that are worth making. Um, when we're thinking about magic, there are a bunch of different kinds of magic out there as traditionally understood. You've got high magic and low magic. Low magic are your little things like uh, uh, charms, uh, that sort of thing. High magic tends to be much more elaborate, and it's connected into much larger philosophical concepts, metaphysical concepts, and things like that. The difference between the two, I suppose, is you could say charms are the equivalent of uh, 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 technology, of tinkering, uh, whereas uh, high magic, um, low magic would be sort of the tinkering. High magic would be high-level engineering with knowledge of physics worked in and all of that sort of thing. If we're going to do an analogy, that would be the best kind of distinction to make. Uh, we also need to distinguish, and th- this is a bit later terminology, this is early modern terminology, between natural magic and artificial magic. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, explain. Now, natural magic is something that is, at least in Christian thought, it was considered at least yeah, reasonably close to legitimate stuff. The idea is that God built into the universe certain hidden forces, Okay. The Latin word for hidden is occult. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Sure. So there are these occult forces that exist within the universe. And if you know how to tap into them and manipulate them, you could use them just like we couldn't use any other force in the universe. Right. Okay. The difference is that these occult forces produced what in the early modern period will be called action at a distance. That is to say something happens in one place, and it has an instantaneous effect somewhere else. Kind of like quarks. Well, uh, in in this case, it's astrology. Yeah, sure. The movement of the planets and the stars has an effect immediately right here. That would be one example. Or you stick a pin in the voodoo doll and the guy across town jumps. 
Right. There's no physical connection. It's an instantaneous reaction because there's an occult, a hidden connection between the two. Right. Now, in principle, natural magic is neutral. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. Now, obviously, ethically, you only want to use it for good. And as a matter of fact, I've yet to run into anybody who practices anything like magic who will acknowledge that they ever use it for evil. But... You know, in principle, that's the way natural magic is supposed to work, but there are a couple of qualifications there. Before you get to those, uh, you know, when we think about white magic versus black magic, are you talking about the distinction being within the practitioner? Um, the traditional distinction between white magic and black magic has to do with the intent and what, it is, what it's supposed to accomplish. If it's supposed to cause harm, it's black magic. If it's supposed to help someone, it's white magic. But that's interesting because, you know, in, there's another possibility, uh, and I don't know enough about the history of this to know if it had any, has, this has any salience, but, but the idea that there are certain kinds of magic that just by their nature can't be used for bad purposes. And I, so I guess that that's what I was, I maybe misunderstood yeah. as being the case with white it, magic. In Christian Europe, that is not a concept okay. that is regularly accepted. <laughs> There are some folk magic traditions like the Benedanti in North Italy uh, that was documented in a book called Night Battles by Carlo Ginsberg. They had a belief that there were certain people who were born with what we would describe as magical abilities that were there specifically to fight against witches who were evil. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're on a folk level, there's some belief in that. Uh, but in the, uh, in the church, not really. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems you get with natural magic is how do you learn about the occult forces? Yeah. And this brings us into the, the second kind of magic, artificial magic. Artificial magic is magic that is performed without using the forces that God has put into the universe, hmm. which would mean in this case things like necromancy, Mm. Uh, summoning demons, those kinds of things. <laughs> and it's worth noting, when you go into the Middle Ages, like I said, you see virtually no witchcraft, but you do see some technical necromancy. Mm. Necromancy literally means prophesying through the dead. Okay, so let's, okay. So let's stop and just kind of think, mm. sort of flesh this out a little bit. Mm. So natural magic would be, these are forces that God has made or imbued into the cosmos, the mm. order, but they're, they're mysteries, to use more biblical, mm -hmm. ancient language, right. but then but we would refer to them as a cult because we're talking about a different language. And so mm -hmm. these are, but, but nevertheless, they're, they're kind of beneath the surface, but they're present because God has willed them to be so. Right. I would, now, would they be creations? They're part of creation. Okay, so they're part of creation. And so your knowledge of those things is a knowledge of God's wisdom, you could say. Right. But the question is, how do you get it? Right, right. Okay. Um, but okay. the other, the artificial, this is what I wanted to get at. So, the, so where does that come from? Uh, okay. You know, this this uh, necromancy and stuff like that. Okay. Natural magic. Oh, think about it in terms of where does the power to perform the magic come from? In natural magic, it comes from the natural world. In artificial magic, like I said, that's a 17th century language, but... Artificial magic, it comes through spirits or demons. They're the ones who will supply the motive power for it. Okay, so there's an agency that is actually has its origin in God because fallen right. angels, right. demons are made by God. Right. But 
their uh, intent, their intent is malicious, but they still possess some native power that originally came from God but is now corrupted. Right. And the idea is that through various means, people can either compel or make a deal with one of these spirits that will give them power or that the spirit will use its power on their behalf. Interesting. Interesting. So the, in, in the Middle Ages, like I say, you don't see much witchcraft, but what you do see is necromancy, which literally refers to summoning spirits of the dead in order to get information. Hmm. That is the, the narrow, strict, technical definition. Now, of let's stop here. Now, we have this in the Bible. The Witch of Endor. Witch of Endor. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, the interesting thing is that the people who are involved in necromancy in the Middle Ages <clears throat> are members of the clergy. How about that? Because, number one, it's high magic. It's ritual magic. It's, it depends very, very highly on formulas and things like that that yeah, are, right. are given and transmitted, and it's connected into a broader set of concepts. And so they would actually summon the dead mm. in an effort to get knowledge, something that someone who's dead knew about. Yeah. It could be anything yeah. from buried treasure to almost you know, just about anything. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is we have a lot of the formulas. We actually have these. And if you read them, they are summoning spirits and things like that And they are binding the spirit using the power of the sun and the moon and Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and Venus and Mercury Hmm. and Mother Mary and Father Joseph and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all the angels and St. Michael. You know, it it throws in everything. They're they're calling in everybody. They're calling in the troops. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so so there is actually, Hmm. for something that is so explicitly banned in Scripture, they put in a lot of Christian elements in these formulas. This is like like voodoo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you think of voodoo, you know, when you think of voodoo, you, you know, it's a synchronistic thing. Right. Where you're bringing, okay, these are spiritual powers out here. Mm-hmm. Hey, we got some really powerful ones. Mary, man, yeah. she's, she's yeah. got a, this is like playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and you got yeah. the card, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, as time goes on, the word necromancy expands in meaning beyond just simply summoning the dead to summoning demons and things like that. Hmm. And so when you're getting in now, and this is, this is the, one of the problems with natural magic, where did the knowledge come from? Yeah. Did, did it come through a demon? Did the demon actually give you the information or give someone else the information who passed it on to you? In its origin, is the information good? Hmm. Okay, it may be true. Yeah but, yeah, yeah, but are you getting it from a good entity? Oh, and by the way, if you summon a demon and use the demon to heal someone, which could be done, huh. that is also evil. So the white magic, black magic thing gets really fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. Because you could use demonic power to do something that is a positive end, to heal somebody or something like that. <laughs> but if it's done through a demon, it's defined as evil. Well, this is like, this is like a formula for something on... I don't know, night gallery or something, <laughs> where, you know, twilight zone, you know, where <laughs> things go awry because somebody has good intentions but uses, you know, fallen means. Right. And, um, well, I mean, one thing, I mean, I don't know how historically accurate he is, but I know he's he's picking up on a, a kind of a reading of, his, of the enchanted world, Charles Taylor. Um, but he, he, he uses this term porous selves, and he tries to describe this period of people as being very... They don't have the enlightenment buffer between them and the world. So the elements of the world impact, the spirits of the world impact people in a, in a much wider 
um, in, in a wider sense than we would talk about it today. I mean, we still have it. I mean, we're doing it right now. <laughs> I mean, people look, we're porous. We recognize that the elements impact us, so we're reacting. Um, it was much more intense during that time. Well, and, and it goes further. Let, yeah. let, let's move this out of strict magic in, yeah. into folklore areas. Right. Um, they believed that the universe needed to, that every, every place, every zone, every area in the universe had its legitimate inhabitants. Mm. Oh, yeah, like the spheres. Right. So, spheres. Well, but, but let, let's but just also look. also within our area. Yeah, sure, let's sure. just look at the Earth. You've got fish in the water. Right. You've got animals on land. What's, there's a term for this. It's like the plenitude. Everything is full. Right. Everything is full. It's a plenitude. Now, here's the thing. What occupies the air? We would, for us, we'd say birds, right. but birds always nest. They live on the ground or they live in trees. And actually, this is where they turn the prince of the power of the air right. mm. comes from. So, so what you get is, or you could go to Shakespeare, <laughs> airy spirits yes, from the right. tempest. Right. There, there's this idea that there are, are spiritual beings that live in the air. This is the origin of the fae. Right, right. Um, who, by the way, Fairy in, stories. In, mm -hmm. in, um, in medieval thought, the Fae were angels who tried to stay neutral in the war between Satan and God. Interesting. So not, they're not, not, they're not the, condemned as, as demons, but they're not allowed into heaven because they didn't stop side with God. So they're right, these airy right. spirits. To, distant, to differentiate them from Tammy Faye. <laughs> yes. Just wanted to throw but, that in. Yes. Yeah, well, She's anything but there, there's, there's a whole... That's a, that's a subject for an essay. Yeah. But, but this, this, yeah. this whole... Like, like when people say the little people, yeah. mm -hmm. often people, I think, it, like sort of Victorians who had already sort of bought into kind of a materialistic way of thinking, they interpret that as diminutive. Right. In, this, in sort of a physical sense. That's why you get... This is what Tolkien was reacting against uh, in his famous essay on fairy stories. He said, you know, this idea that, fairy, that the fae are diminutive is not uh, well, true. And, and it, interesting. Uh, but, but let me just finish my thought. The idea of the small had to do with exactly what you just brought up, Glenn. The idea that these are sort of... They're small in the sense that they're in between these divine mm -hmm. you know, and demonic right. powers... <laughs> but they're, they're, they're kind of pursuing their own ends. Right. And if you read Lewis um, in The Discarded Image, he's got a chapter on these things. Yes. And in there, what's really interesting is he says, you know, crossing into, into fairy, into this, the, their realm, is always dangerous. And he says in, it is frequently described in frightening terms. Right. Like you're suddenly in this place where you're walking over skulls. Right, you know, right. bodies and things like that, because it, it, it's always a very hazardous realm. Right. But the thing can be involved in magic, too. Sure. That could be a source of power. Right, right. You're going to say something, Tom? Well, yeah, it's a, just, uh, just an, an odd side note. I remember I had some friends from uh, Sweden who were, they were studying history, but they went and visited a very uh, isolated part of Ireland and then parts of nor northern uh, Europe, and they, said, they came back saying they actually were sitting in pubs listening to conversations of people who had a fully realist belief that the fairies were still alive. Yeah, yeah. And they were communicating with this. So right. this isn't something that has left a lot of these regions, even though even though for us it kind of seems very Well, I, I heard something quaint. Quaint. Uh, quaint. Yeah. quaint. I heard something uh, uh, you know, about so, uh, connected to this in, from Iceland. Mm -hmm. Apparently. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? There was a there was like a fairy mound 
And you know, there was a plan to put a highway in a certain area, and there was pro there were protests because yeah. it would disturb the ferry mound. Interesting. Yeah. And and that may sound like we just don't want to. You know, we may be protecting an endangered species. Right. But. Without really knowing the situation, it's quite possible they're also thinking if you disturb this, you have no idea what the consequences right, might be. Right, I mean, you get, you, you, get, you tick those guys off. There <laughs> yeah. are lots of stories about ticking those guys off. <laughs> right, and, and they never end well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Don't yeah. ask with the fairies or the fairies. So, 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 um, all right, so that's medieval. Now, medieval and into Renaissance. It turns out a lot of people think of the Renaissance as, as sort of the origins of the scientific revolution and things like that. Actually, the Renaissance is the golden age of magic theory. Yeah. Well, well now, before, you, before we go any f- further, uh, let me just ask, are we going to get to Pascal and his theory of the vacuum? Um, we could go there, but that wasn't where I was heading. Because the, with, with the idea of plenitude, what, what occurred to me is that when we talk about space today and we talk about vacuum, one of the things that was sort of difficult for people to sort of reconcile themselves to with Pascal's experiment or with this mm-hmm. new vision of the cosmos that we have with Copernican, the Copernican mm-hmm. Re- revolution is the idea of unfilled Spaces. Yeah, and that, that's Descartes. Uh, for Descartes, uh, matter is extension. In other words, if it takes up volume, it's matter. Yeah, and so, so but the idea, though, that, you know, it, with this idea that there is something uh, sort of abiding in every mm-hmm. right. place. Yeah. Um, there are no vacuums spiritually, so to speak. Yeah. I think that there's something there. That wasn't where I was going to head. But I, but think, I just want to sort of, I, I just want to, I'll close the thought and then you can move on. I, you know, I think that's what, one of the things that Lewis is dealing with with the space trilogy, is mm-hmm. how to deal with this, how to reconcile the medieval understanding of plenitude with mm-hmm. the modern cosmology of space. Right, yeah. But anyway, so let's, let's go back to what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, now. so it, it, what you see in the Renaissance is actually... A, a recovery of the late antique hermetic tradition combined with a number of other things. And you actually get, this is the point at which high magic re- reaches, or philosophical magic, we could even call it, reaches its highest expression. It's actually during the Renaissance, hmm. just prior to the start of the scientific revolution. So Leonardo da Vinci is doing ma- magic, and that's why he was such a genius. The thing that's interesting is that a lot of the, a lot of the key things in the scientific revolution occur not because of the Renaissance, but in reaction to the Renaissance. And it's interesting, interesting. So, for Fill example, Marsilio Ficino, uh, one of the most important of the Florentine humanists. Uh, he's the guy who translated all of Plato into mm. Latin for the mm. first time, yeah, all, all yeah. the surviving works of Plato. Right. Brilliant guy, a linchpin in um, Italian Renaissance thought. Everybody connects with Ficino if they're alive when he's alive. Ficino believed in all of these things of occult forces and things like that. So, like many scholars, he tended toward a, a bit on the depressive side. Okay. Um, I've and, known that as guy. Yeah, and so he he decided with his wisdom that he acquired of the secrets of these occult forces. What he figured he would do is channel the influence of the planet Jupiter, Jupiter also known as Jove, hence Jovial. Yeah, right. And also Venus, because he kind of figured he needed to lighten up there as well. And, 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 and so the erotic, right? And so, so the way he did this 
was he took the symbols of the planets Jupiter and Venus, had them made into medallions, hmm. and wore them as a way of channeling the influence through the occult forces into him to affect his personality. Hmm. And then along with this, it's not just the symbols, it's certain colors and sounds and yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of this was designed not just because wearing bright colors makes you happy or, or peppy, right. it's because there's actually an occult force that you are t channeling into your life by using these symbols with these materials and these colors and things like that to actually affect yourself. Now, now there, and it, yeah. you can also do a similar sort of thing to affect others. Now, yeah. there are a couple things going on here that I think we need to respond to. One, you know, one is you know you made the the, the observation that you, or you cited Lewis early on in our in our conversation regarding the devil. Either he's under every rock or he's nowhere, and he's mm -hmm. happy for us to think either. Mm -hmm. Is the case when we get to this kind of stuff? There are so many people that just shut down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, what it sort of what it implies is that there's a kind of continuity and an analogy between physical signs or yes. symbols yeah. and spiritual realities. Yes. And this underlies much of the sacerdotal, yeah. you know, tradition yeah. within the church. And one of the reasons why our Baptist friends and so forth, and this is why when they when you yeah. tell them that they're actually modernists, they just recoil. They don't understand what, yeah. what, you're, what you're saying. Right. And it, it speaks to what Nancy Piercy calls, the, well, and other people as well, call the fact-value distinction. Yes. Right. With the Enlightenment, yeah. you, you get this thing where the only thing that's really real is the material world. Yeah. And anything that's not material, yeah. ethics, morality, yeah. religion, Aesthetics, all of those kinds of things. Anything that you can't verify empirically isn't real. It's not an element of knowledge, and the two realms don't touch. And the, and the, histo yeah, and the historical becomes materialistically, and, and it's about efficient causality yeah. and, and material causality, and it, and it has you know ideas of the product of material causality, right? Mm -hmm. You you. It, history basically sets the material conditions. There is a place for that, but they, it's everything for them, and therefore the idea is what the birth, the epiphenomena of material. Right. So you screen out. You know, if we take a look at you know, Aristotelian causation, you yeah. know, you're talking about efficient causation, yeah. material causation, formal causation, and yeah. final causation. Final are ruled well, out. Well, 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 but the two, the two that have been, you know, ruled out are formal and final. Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about now is formal causation. Yes. Because we're talking about yeah. these occult forces. Yeah. What occult forces would imply is that there are certain realities that are beneath the surface mm -hmm. that express themselves in certain ways mm -hmm. in the world. And if you can get at those yeah. and manipulate them, this is what, what magic is about. So magic right. is not irrational. Right, not in this system. It, right. It's Arthur C. Clarke yeah. said that yeah. any sufficiently advanced technology <clears throat> will look like magic to people who don't understand it. Sure, and I know and, what and, Clark was getting at. And <laughs> in, in, in natural theology, excuse me, in natural magic, what they're looking at is the equivalent of an advanced technology. Right. It's tapping yeah. into stuff that is there in the universe. Now, we may dismiss it as fanciful or crazy or stuff like that, and that, that's probably the right thing to do with it. But they're not thinking of it they're not seeing the world in the kind of materialistic way that we are. They believe that there is actual meaning in the physical world. No. And they are, they are tapping into these meanings which connect into the forces and the symbols, right. all of these kinds of things. Yeah. 
in a way that is utterly foreign to how we think. But, but I think the challenge for us, mm -hmm. you know, we want to bring back the best of that yeah. way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true in stuff that you're working with, Tom. Yeah. And I know Glenn for me as well. But uh, how do we sort the wheat from the chef? Uh, I can tell you're chomping at the bit, Tom, so go ahead. Yeah, let me see if I can unpack <laughs> a few thoughts. And I don't know if I can. This is just... It's sort of, uh, it's, it's all, it, these are just kind of impressions at the moment. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's going on here is, um, I mean, well, let me back up. A lot of us think that to be reformed, to be Protestant, to get rid of speculation means, therefore, to become materialists. <laughs> Sadly. In effect. Sadly. They, they would never what, admit that. They would never that, admit that, it, but that's sort of it. That, that, yeah. the, that the, the, the um, banal historical, if you will. That's why we attract engineers. <laughs> they love us. Okay. That's, that's okay. Yeah. I'm all set. You all set? Yeah. Thanks. But, but, and so, and so, yes. This this kind of this kind of um, anti-metaphysical historical, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of you know Bruce McCormick at Princeton promoting an interpretation of Karl Barth is basically anti-metaphysical historicism. Of course, it's chock full of metaphysics, but that's a different topic, different right. day. Right. Um, but but what do I mean by that? It's that 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 which is on one plane of causation, and then. The other aspect of it is that on the level of the Logos and the way in which the Logos is present in all things, and the way that each thing kind of manifests or refracts God's glory and manifests something of truth, um, what happens on that level is it gets reduced in the modern world and often in the modern Protestant evangelical world, well, whole Christian world for that matter now, um, as just sort of one level of meaning. And that meaning is usually able to be attained through social sciences or yeah. natural sciences or histor historical you, methods. Or, right, or um, analysis of grammar or something like that. That's right, yeah. You read the grammar, you read the history in terms of that one level of reality. And, that and, you, and, and even that, the literary critical approach is, yeah. has more in common with, say, someone at like uh, MIT. Who is the guy I'm thinking about? The Chom language guy, Chomsky. Chomsky. Yeah. More in common with Chomsky than with Aquinas. Yeah. So you got evangelicals who are talking, yeah, are actually parroting Chomsky. Yeah, that's right. And Rorty and, and yeah. other figures like this. So what we have here is what we're talking about is the fact that, okay, there is a lot here that as evangelicals that are reformed and that are Christian, classical or contemporary, those indebted to, to our classical Christian that's faith. A, that's a topic for a show. It is. Evangelicals, <laughs> classic, and contemporary. <laughs> you got to return to that. That's right. But, that, that, but we, we would say that, of course, there's a lot of things that we will not go with. There's something Lewis Ayers, um, he's a historian of dogma. I think he's, uh, he's a Catholic historian of dogma, but he has an interesting thing. He said, when you look at the patristic hermeneutic for reading the Trinity, it is very different than the modernist re-adoption of the Trinity. Interesting. He so says, you're talking what, about the 20th century 20th re century. So the personalism we talked about last time. Last time. So he said, for example, he calls it, what does he call it? Uh, we, need, we need to start talking about what he calls the cultures of theology. And he's saying the culture of theology that modernity works with, with Karl Barth and Karl Rahner's retrieval of the Trinity, is radically different than the culture in which the historic, patristic Christian faith. He goes, but interestingly, they're the ones who gave us the Trinity. 
Right. And he said, if there is a correlation between their hermeneutic, their worldview, and those doctrines that we hold so sacred, yeah. how is it that we can affirm those doctrines but reject all of the rest that goes with it so yeah, easily? Yeah. And then we brother, run amen. towards... Yeah, you got a witness. We run towards <laughs> Karl Barth, Karl Rahner, and these others, but basically they are revisionists of the doctrine yes. because the, the, the culture and worldview that they've embraced, which I would say is a lot of what was what we would tend to affirm in most of our evangelicals and preaching else. Preaching. Preach it. What do I mean here in relation to Glenn's topic? Well, what we have here is a world permeated with meaning on levels of causality that are unfamiliar to us and a lot of us would not want to follow that way. But on the other hand, many of the things that we have been given, even in modern science, much less everything else, have come from practices and, and ideas that are completely foreign and would never have given them to us if we were to adopt the way they've come to today. Yes, right. And so what right. we have going on here is something that we cannot just place into a simple either-or. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is actually ask the full Christian worldview vision is, what is it in that time that is something that actually is more congruous or, or in, in, uh, actually more sound in relationship to the Christian worldview? that we've kind of thrown out with well, this sure. shit. So let, let me introduce something to podcast land yeah. that's, that, that struck me as you yeah. described the situation, Tom. What Glenn described, uh, you know, in terms of magic yeah. in the Renaissance and the late me medieval world is closer to the early church than we are. Yes. Far closer. Far closer. And we presume that we've left over all of that yeah. stuff yeah. to right. get... Yeah. Here, here, here's the way I, I would, jumping off of yeah. Tom's, you know, my yeah. sort of riff off of Tom here. We look at Ficino and his magic stuff, and we say that's a load of hooey. Right. And you know what it is. Okay. However, Ficino's core idea that there is meaning in the universe, that symbols have meaning, that symbols, that there is a connection between the sign and the thing it signifies. And not just a socially constructed not one. Not just a socially right. constructed one, that there, there is an objective reality there. He may have taken this in the wrong direction and drew wrong conclusions from it, but that doesn't mean the premise is wrong. And if you are going to judge Ficino for coming to wrong conclusions based on that premise, I will challenge you to look at the wrong premises that come out of the modernity you accept. Yes. Well, and, you know, you, you, do you really want to go there? I mean, yeah, because, yeah, because, yeah. because our, our culture is such that it is antithetical to so many things in Christianity, and yet it's, we don't know we're wet. It's the world we're, we're right. fish swimming the, the in a world. Yeah, and right. we've, we've been you know, given, uh, interestingly, uh, mentioned Karl Barth again. He wrote, he did a, a series of lectures on 19th century theology. This was in his early formative years when he was trying to start to teach, and he wanted to comprehensively understand the history that led up to where he was. And one of the interesting things he said is, he goes, if we want to talk about the shift to the Enlightenment as this age of purifying ourselves from disenchantment, he goes, we really can't talk about the Enlightenment world or what followed. He goes, this was the world that gave us the Masons. This yes. is the world that gave us table seances in the elite classes. Right. This is the world that brought in all these things 
while at the same time those same classes were promoting all of the advancements and, and it's it's a kind of gnostic dualism yes I mean, what, you know like what you just described uh, early in the in the show Glenn where you were saying that you got a lot of students who believe in magic right yeah. But they're also probably scientific, sort of, uh, sort of, uh, uh, that probably hold up the scientific method right. as a kind of idol. Yeah, and, you know, I've I've had students tell me that um, that uh, someone threw, cast a curse on them and they had to go to a voodoo priestess to get it lifted. This and is this is at Central Connecticut State University. Right, right. We haven't had this at the Catholic school yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, me, let me let me just uh, go down a rabbit hole here and see where we come up. Do you remember? You guys remember Scott Peck back in the eighties who wrote a yeah. book entitled "The Road Less Traveled." Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Now he was an interesting character because he was a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay, Harvard educated, right? So he started off uh, when he wrote that book. Now, now most of the people in Pug Class Land probably have no idea who I'm talking about, yeah. but he was on the New York Times bestseller list for like years for mm-hmm. his book, "The Road Less Traveled." Yeah. And then people of the lie. And and that's where I'm going to go. Yeah. So in in the road less traveled. So he starts off as a Buddhist. So he's a Harvard educated Buddhist. Yeah. And uh, he says, well, I want to write this book, uh, the road less traveled. Obviously based on you know Robert Frost's poem, you know the road mm-hmm. less traveled. And so he uh, says, well, if I, you know one of the things he wants to talk about in the book is love. And he says, well, if I'm going to talk about love, I better read the Gospels. He's an honest liberal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've known some. Well, and there used to be a lot more there, of them. Yeah, there used to be yeah. a lot more of them, yeah. But anyway, so he said, well, I'm going to read the Gospels. He starts off as a Buddhist. By the time he end, ends John's Gospel, he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, this, and the reason he's, he, sa- he, he says he became a Christian is he said, you know, this, this genre, Gospel, you know, we've got four of them. Yeah. It's unlike anything. Yeah, and we're something. dealing with you know, sort of metaphysics, but we're also talking about just real life. I said, I, I know Peter. He's in my, he, he comes to me for counseling every week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he says, these are real people. These yeah. are not archetypes. This is not young. Yeah. This is, this is, this is real stuff. So yeah, then, it's, it's theosis with calluses. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so the gospels converted Scott Peck. I remember seeing him. Yeah. I went to, I went to hear a, him speak at Trinity Church in Copley Square yeah. in Boston, right in the shadow mm-hmm. of the Prudential Tower. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he said when he got, and the place was packed. People were sitting on the floor to hear Scott Peck. The first thing he said is this, I am an evangelist. (laughs) I believe in the gospel. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. (laughs) (laughs) That's how he starts. (laughs) This is a secular audience. Those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, you can't even get that to happen in the Christian church. <laughs> He'd be kicked out of many right, mega churches right. today as right. alienating the audience. Yeah, but anyway, so so people of the lie, you brought it up. People of the lie. So so he takes the scientific approach. He says, "Okay, you read People of the Lie. I've read People. Have you read People of the Lie? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Well, you know how it goes. Yeah. He says, okay, I'm going to study the prospect or I'm going to study the reality of evil. Yeah. Yeah. I want to study evil. And so, and he does the same thing he did with the Gospels. He said, well, demon possession. That's yeah. like a thing. And he actually goes to exorcisms. Yeah. <laughs> And he comes away saying, the devil is real. I've met him. 
Yeah. So I'll, if you want to hear, if you want to read some hair-raising stuff, yeah. read this Harvard-educated psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. He's got mm -hmm. an MD. Yeah. A psychiatrist who says, "I've met the devil." Yeah, I'll never forget uh, at, at, Duke, at Duke Divinity School when I was finishing up uh, some of my earlier theology work. I mean, Duke Divinity School is one of these play, interesting places that you also have a confessional conservatism, but also a far-left, everything-goes-ism. <laughs> <laughs> they they coexist. Yeah, in a weird way. They, and, and whatever that... No, I know what you're talking you about, but I'm most right? of our people don't. don't. <laughs> but one of the interesting things, Stanley Hauerwas, he was he was prepping for his lectures, um, his Gifford lectures, actually, and he gave us a class reading of them. But he was talking about, they were ta starting to talk about certain phenomena that, that, that grew up in the, in the field of pastoral uh, care and, you know, sort of uh, counsel. And uh, out of nowhere, and, you, and you're, hearing, you're dealing with at least half the class that, you know, are modernists, naturalists, really don't believe in anything but have a Christian gloss on it. And, um, and Stanley Howard says, I think we need to finally start talking about demon possession again. Yes, I agree. And I agree. <laughs> I believe in demon possession. And that is where we get to artificial magic, yeah. going back to medieval Renaissance conceptions. They did not consider possession a crime. That you were a victim if you were possessed. Oh, if you sent the demon to someone else... <laughs> you that's, a problem. That's, that's a problem. That's a problem. But, that's a problem. but possession itself, you're seen as a victim. You, you, sh you need to be delivered, and that's it. But they definitely believed in the activity of the devil, and they could attribute all kinds of things. I talked about healing before. Right. My favorite example of this is when Gutenberg invented the printing press. First big book he prints is the Bible. Sure. There yeah. was a bookseller, true story, a bookseller bought a bunch of Gutenberg Bibles to take them to Paris because the University of Paris is the pro most prominent theological school in Europe. Sure. He figures this is going to be a good place to sell them. Um, I'm all set. Ready for the check. Absolutely. As he was on his way to Paris, they got, he got stopped and his cart was searched. And they discovered this cartload of Bibles he was arrested and charged with witchcraft <laughs> because they said it was impossible for one person to have that many copies of the Bible. They didn't understand the technology. I mean, so they, could, they could even attribute that to the devil. That's right. That's right. Too many Bibles. Now, now most, most evangelicals today would be accused of witchcraft. <laughs> And there would be nothing that they could say in their own defense because most of them don't actually read the Bible. <laughs> the Bible enough to actually demonstrate that they were, they were interested in the Bible because they wanted it for positive or wholesome reasons. <laughs> yeah. so, but, but like I said, you know, they, they could attribute pretty much anything to the devil. It's this sort of the point here. Right, right. Um, I, I almost did my doctorate on history of printing. I hold that story very, very close to my heart. Um, but... Now, now podcast land. How many Bibles do you have in your home? <laughs> you could be accused of witchcraft. <laughs> okay, so uh, so um, so here here's here's the thing though that we need to really be thinking about. We you know we're modernists. We reject the idea of magic unless it's done by Penn and Teller. You know, or somebody <laughs> like that. Or, or interestingly, I mean, this is something I was thinking about when you you mentioned the topic. Is you know Whole Foods. 
Okay. I don't now there's get, some magic. I don't oh, want to get into that. We want to go too. there. Do we? I don't want to get there too much. But you have a whole generation of people who basically that you can peddle anything under the term natural, and it becomes almost qualitatively different than anything that could happen to you. Yeah, be. you know, one of the things I love to throw at those people are things like arsenic. You know, arsenic is yeah. poisonous. <laughs> it's natural. Perfectly natural. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week. You bet. Yep. Bye bye. But but I mean I don't want to go too long on that. I know we're we're wrapping up. But it's it's just this notion that uh, I'm okay if I fill my system with something that has the okay of the 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 whole food or the you know the organic or not just you know I don't want to diminish you know you know right certain, yeah there, certain there there is a kind of magic that people associate with certain foods or certain supplements or certain you know or organic or natural or whatever there's, right. there's, we we sort of view that in in a, a nearly magical way but but the thing that we don't talk about particularly those of us in the reformed world is the reality of demonic activity yeah. the reality that people are we don't talk the the, the mm -hmm. terminology these days isn't so much possession; it's demonization. Yeah, because it can occur on a variety of different levels. But we don't really talk about that much. Right. Yeah. And we, and know, yet at this, it. and yet and that that's because in our modernist mindset, that doesn't happen. That's impossible. It doesn't fit our categories. The we have a, a minimalist view of the universe where we don't. You talked about this before. We don't even have a role for angels, right. yeah. really. I mean, because God's sovereign, He's omnipotent, He's all powerful. What does He need them for? And we right. fear that to do so, we we import the extremes of maybe the charismatic movement that for us oftentimes exhibits, you know, the, some of the worst examples. The Jim and Tammy Bakerism. Yeah, and, and, and some of the worst examples of, you know, kind of outmoded superstition. Demons behind everything. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember people seeing demons in their soup kind of stuff, you know. Right. The letters in their soup are off. So right, it's, right. it's where, where hyper-meaning, <laughs> you know. Right. Everything gets so filled and, and chock-filled with meaning that... Uh, well, but even there, you know, I, you yeah. know when, I, when I think about sort of folk sort of ways of thinking in this regard, there's a kind of superficiality to that. Yeah. So, you know, these, these people will at the same, one of the same moments see the Madonna in their toast. Yeah, yeah. But fail to see the meaning of bread. Yeah, you, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure, right. sure. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've done some work in Africa, and the people in Africa don't really have this problem. Mm -hmm. Because their lived experience is that demons are active. They do things that are very nasty to people. Mm -hmm. uh, I know people who have had um, severe curses and things like that on them that have, have made them bedridden and unable to move for weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. I mean, things like that. Um, and more, more specifically, weird stuff like a guy that was in um, Sierra Leone during the Civil War. He was one of the uh, rebel commanders who was able to walk among a herd of wild, wild elephants without any of them ever touching him. And that's, a, that is, that's the road to suicide. Mm -hmm. And yet this guy, this guy had complete power in that situation. I mean, there are weird things like this yeah. that happen in the world that are inexplicable 
by any of our normal Western canons. And, and also, I mean, I, I notice in the, in the West where we, we encounter a lot of psychological illness, Mm, um, mm, mm-hmm. Why is it always, I always ask my friends who work in therapy and counseling, is why is it often, not always, forgive me, um, why is it often that there is always this um, excruciating attraction to the breakdown of norms and the demonic? Yes, that yes. I have heard it firsthand from people. I love Lucifer. I want to the devil to take me with him. Yes. Why, why is yes. it in the psychological that language comes up? Yeah, I, and, you know, the, when, when you spend time in that world, and I have, yeah. because my mother was in and out of that yeah. world. I, I know that world from the inside. Yeah. And I've known people who are you know, in the care of the you know, proxies of the state. Yeah. Oftentimes you go in to those places you'll see just what you described you know satanic symbolism yep. but also evidences of, of some you know so some dis- deep disturbance a, a desire to desecrate desecrate and then the I am God thing well oh, there's there's yeah. the I am God but there's also the desecration like yeah. feces on the wall <laughs> is like everywhere yeah. like what is it what is it that's gotten a hold of you yeah. That you want to you want to smear feces on the wall. Yeah. There's something about that that speaks yeah. to something that drives it towards this 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 breaking down of common order, and then also this this kind of this turn to and, and oftentimes it's very explicit the demonic, yeah. the devil. Yeah, and, and, and naturalistic explanations just cannot deal with that. Yeah. Except Lewis. This well, is why I started with that quote from Lewis. We either see him under every bush or we make believe he's not there. But Most makes, people make believe he's not there, but the evidence that he is is very clear. And, and that's why I brought up Peck. Because here's exactly. the guy. You know, yeah. So what, what I think that uh, I'd like to see is a, an intelligent and reflective approach that remains open to the supernatural yeah. at the same time is willing to accept the... You know, sort of scientific, sort of you know, material and efficient causation explanation. Right, Martin Lloyd Jones, who okay. um, I think it was in, it was either in his book on spiritual depression or healing in the scriptures. I think it was in one of those two. He said that you know, scripture has a category for mental illness. Mm-hmm. It also has a category for demon possession. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not in, it, it's not just one or the other. It could be either of them. It could be both of them. It could yeah. be you know. It's much more yeah. complicated than just yeah. it's always demons well, or it's it. always I, mental. Yeah, I always said. I mean, I've always thought. You know, I mean, just just. I mean, it's always more than just. But there's always this this bizarre thing. For example, with most people, and I've had a lot of experience with people who wrestle with various uh, mental illnesses. But you never hear one say, "Guess what." I've embraced the incarnation and the Holy Trinity, and I've been reborn. In in there, in there encounters. Yeah. And and so whatever is going on both on the natural and also on the supernatural level, it's interesting that the capacity of the phenomena is not such that it causally orients one towards the embrace of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it never could happen. <laughs> but what I'm saying is is that there is just an interesting like you said movement towards this breakdown of norms, this break, you know, and then this, this kind of, this extreme attraction to that, which is sort of, um, 
Well, you know, the way I describe it is, is you know, when we think of the bourgeois, you know, yeah. sort of like the middle class, middle yeah. class values, there's really not a lot of room for what we've just described. I talk, you know, in, in like our church, yeah. our church is made up of a lot of up and outers and down and outers. Yeah. yeah. So up and outers are people of privilege, yeah. people who come from sort of uh, blue blood, so to speak, yeah. or, you know, environments where, you know, you went to prep schools and things yeah. like that. You know, you and I could talk about different yeah. people in the church and I could say him, 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 yeah, yeah. her, her, you know, that kind of thing. And then there are other people who are down and outers. Yeah. Who didn't have any access to sort of middle American values, and I mean that in the in the pejorative sense. Yeah, you know there are a lot of things that to praise about middle American bourgeois values, and, you know, basic things like self control and stuff yeah. like that. But but what is screened out in a lot of that is what we've just been talking about. But the people that I have experienced, that I know personally, who are most open to the supernatural are the up and outers and the down and outers. Sort of the underclass, you know, people that we normally associate yeah. with Pentecostal churches, yeah. and on the other end, people that we associate with Episcopalian yeah. <laughs> spirit-filled churches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what you got in those places are people who, for whom, like I mean, years ago, I had a friend named Roger Dewey, and he was uh, the founder of an organization called Christians for Urban Justice in Boston. Hmm. For years, he worked in the in the world of of uh, economic development and with inner city poor. And then overnight, he started a ministry to kids from prep schools. Mm. And I was I was with him one time. I said, you know, "Roger, what's going on?" He said, "Those communities have a lot more in common than you know." And he said, "Both of them come from dysfunctional homes. Both of them are filled with full of drug addiction. The difference is education and money." That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of, like, parental involvement in the lives of children... It's the same. It's the same. So, yeah. and, and, but, but those are the places where you see people are, like, looking because yeah. life has let them down. That's it, yeah. They're looking it, for supernatural reality. And that's what I see increasingly in yeah. my students. Hmm. Yeah. When you go to the... When, I've, I've been teaching at Central for over 25 years now. Hmm. And the students' worldview is radically different now than it was 20 years it ago. It is. Wow. They, it, is. It, it, it has changed from a, you know, a, I mean, I've had to change how I teach because it's gone from a very naturalistic, you know, sort of secular mindset to, you know, this, this implicit belief in the supernatural in mm -hmm. some yeah. form or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And... You know, one of the problems I think we have as evangelicals is we, you know, our apologetics is geared toward the 1950s. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. It's Evidence that demands a verdict. Yeah, which right. is a great book. Yeah. It's a great book. It was for very effective what, in the 50s. For what it does. For its day. But, but yeah. what we need now is a totally different apologetic that yeah. is built around people that increasingly have a supernatural worldview, a real supernatural yeah. worldview. Now, how do engineers relate to that? And by the way, you know, most reformed yeah. people are really good with you know, the, re the yeah. reformed approach is great with accountants and engineers. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I mean, first of all, as Pythagoras uh, taught us, that n- numbers. <laughs> now we're going me- way back. N- now numbers and metaphysics are very interrelated. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we could well, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and there was they were dealing with this idea that Pythagoras was like a proto scientist. I said, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> he was he was a magician, and the same <laughs> same as musicians who work with numbers, scales, yeah. and and music and metaphysics. I mean, you're dealing with a holistic worldview that requires everything the Christian worldview talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, it just maybe articulates it differently um, if it isn't Christian and, and it isn't naturalistic and reduces everything down to, to you know, m- mere matter. Um, but, but one of the things that you, you have here bubbling over, I think, in, in the now is the fact that materialism, I think what we've seen is... has. Ha- I'm going to argue in advance... I know it will have a little comeback, but it's had its day. I think it's had its day. It it cannot even help to explain our experience of the world, much less anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it, it's hyper irrational, which by its nature it would have to be. Right. Um, materialism can't even explain consciousness, or, or even uh, materialism, or, or, or thought. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, or it can't even explain itself. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, and at the end of the day, if you have an explanation for materialism, it depends on a rationality that has a correspondence to a reality. But how in the world do you get a rationality corresponding to a reality that is aimed at survival and not truth? Right. Yes, so, right. so that that yeah. right there, that's does, that argument. does it in. That's right. Yeah, and Lewis mm-hmm. has had that. I mean, other, others, others, um, mm-hmm. uh, Dave. Bentley Hart had it. I mean, that's it. That ends it. Because if I'm aimed at survival and not that, then okay, this may be what I need to do to survive, but this has nothing to do with truth. And so, okay, your survival and my survival are different. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah, that's the formula for survival is loading up on ammo that's and right. killing everybody around you. That's right. And, and possessing yeah. all of the toilet paper and, and we'll peanut see butter it, we'll that you We'll see in about get. three weeks what, what, what naturalism, where naturalism is. Um, yeah, it's, it's like the great Khalil Gibran yeah, variant. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, if right. you love something, you must set it free. If it was <laughs> yours, it will come back to you. If it if it does not come back to you, hunt it down and kill yeah, it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's yeah. I grew up in Virginia. That's oh, kind I, of like our motto. Well, I, I remember that. I mean, my mother was into that. You know, mm-hmm. I've got such a weird background. Yeah. But my mother was super into that. I remember growing up around those books, The yeah. Prophet. Yeah. 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 But... Um, Anyway, we're we're probably running low on time, so we're we're out of time. I'm I'm going to I'm going to um, cast a few things to the pugs here as a sort of summary. All right, all right. I assume assume the pug cast is for casting the pugs. I don't know, but but they're waiting for the 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 two things I'd like you to be thinking about are first of all. This idea, once again, we're coming back to something we've talked about over and over again, particularly early on in the podcast, about the world having meaning. And that's fundamentally one of the core things that's behind the natural magic tradition Mm -hmm. that says that the world has meaning, that there are things that you can tap into related to these meanings that you use for magic. Okay, fine, we might not want to go there. But what do we do with the idea of the world actually meaning something in other words the world isn't just facts it's meaning where do we go with that that's number one before you go i just want to throw it in because it's on my mind um 
there was one inkling that focused on that that tends to get undermined, and I think it would be worth doing a show. I would have to update myself. Maybe we could have Tom Plotkin on again yeah, because yeah. Charles Williams. Williams right. Williams Charles Williams was somebody who made right. this connection, and he was part of the inkling, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, that gang, Christian, but also trying to find ways in which the world that Glenn is talking about... Um, yeah. was in continuity and discontinuity with Christianity and ways in which our world has moved to a loss by losing something of that world and he was trying to regain it. Anyway. Uh, right. Yeah, and by the way, I'll, I'll throw in one other thing. This means that the historical, grammatical, literal approach to interpreting scripture has its place, but it's also got severe limits. It's the bottom. It's the bottom. It's not yeah. the top. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, even the way we need scripture might need to be rethought if we understand that the world means something, it's not just bare facts. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the root, like I said, of the natural magic tradition. Now, they may do weird things with it, but we do weird things with our stuff, too. Yeah. <laughs> Jim and Timmy Baker. The, yeah, well, yeah, or, or the sort of secularizing trends that you get over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, where we think that by adapting business methods to grow the church, we're better off than following Jesus' instructions, <laughs> but we won't go now there. that's magic. Anyway, we, we, we won't that go there. Is that's, magic. That's, that like, is that's like magic. black magic. But anyway, right. right. But, and, and the other part of it is the black magic part. It is the reality of demons, you know, that, that we live in a world. We are not the only things in this world. We yeah. live in a world that is inhabited, that is shot through, not only with meaning, but with other kinds of entities that are beyond our ability to directly perceive or, or anything else that are beyond our control. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe that the, call it the supernatural world, I prefer really the invisible world, mm -hmm. is as rich and diverse in its occupants as the visible world is. I agree. Yeah. Um, and... That world interacts with this world in all kinds of ways that we don't understand. And our world interacts with its world. Mm -hmm. We need to recover that understanding as well. And th these, are, these are the two things that I would, would sort of drop out as punchlines for today. Well, that's a great way to, to end the show. You know, my, my response to that just quickly is that one of the reasons why we don't believe in that is we can't control it. Yeah. Right. But anyway, uh, anything you want to say as we wrap up? Uh, I mean, my last point is uh, I think when the church confessed the resurrection of Christ over all of this, it was emphasizing his lordship over it. Mm -hmm. yes. But also the way in which the church would be equipped to actually engage it, not to deny it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really where I'll... I'll yeah, let me, let me just throw one thing in here. Just to, there is a marvelous painting. I've really got to get hold of this one of these days. The medieval painting of the resurrection. Uh, and it's after the harrowing of hell and all of that. And what it shows is Jesus striding forth from the tomb with the stone in front of the tomb lying flat on the ground and Jesus walking out over it. And if you look at it, you will see that sticking out from the tomb are the hands and feet of the devil. Excellent. He'd been ah. blocking the door and Jesus just smashed it down on top of him and he's perfect, been flattened. It is an absolutely wonderful painting and a wonderful image. That's great. Well, as we wrap up, you know, I just want to say a few things. Uh, one of the things, those, those things is uh, uh, going from the sublime to the ridiculous, as they say. 
uh, kind of getting back to, to, to earth, and that, not that this is ridiculous. We are having a, a Kickstarter campaign, and we're going to get that off the ground here pretty soon. And so we'll let you know more about that. If you want to help us out with developing the show, that would be appreciated. Another thing, of course, is the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network has its own app for iPhone and Android, and we encourage you to download that. There will be a day when that will be the only place you can find us. We don't know when that day will be. We want to give folks plenty of time to trans sort of make the transition over. But uh, do that if... Uh, if you would, please, because we want to be in a, a little more on the driver's seat in terms of people being able to hear what we have to say. Um, we live in a world where you can be deplatformed uh, you know, overnight. Talking about black magic and demons. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> and we'd like to have a little more control over the the uh, the broadcast and the fat and and people being able to get a hold of what we have to say. But. With those things said, uh, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support, and we don't take you for granted at all. As we've said many times, we're just astounded at the number of people who actually listen to us on a weekly basis. So thank you for doing that. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, Bye.